There we are. Thank you, thank you, Ozzy. Put this over here. <clears throat> well, the passage that uh, Rowan has just read to us from the Bible in our NIV Pew Bibles, uh, the title of that passage is The Vine and the Branches. And that's a good title. Another good title might be Love and Fruit. And that's because the passage that we're looking at this morning is about intimate relationships between a vine and its branches and an intimate relationship between fruit and love. The first half of today's text explores the relationship between the vine, the branches, and fruit. The second half of today's text explores the relationship between fruit and love. Well, uh, we're continuing to look at a conversation, a long conversation, the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples the night before he was crucified. And in earlier sermons, I've mentioned the fact that, I guess as, as far as I can see, our author, John, he's writing to Christians who he thinks have already read and digested at least one of the other three Gospels before getting to his, the fourth. And there's a good deal of evidence that might suggest that's so. There are glaring omissions, such as the Last Supper and the parables. That suggests that he knows that we know them already. There are references in passing to things that would only make sense if we'd read one of the other Gospels, such as the death of John the Baptist. And there are extra details thrown in. Extra details he knows that you don't know. Like, for example, who it was exactly who cut off the high priest's servant's ear as Jesus was being arrested. So too, here today in our text, John knows that we will be surprised to learn that Jesus said, I am the true vine. And the reason that we'll be surprised is that in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the nation of Israel is the vine. In those three Gospels, we get multiple parables in which Israel is the vine, the people of God. We get, for example, the parable of the tenants. It's a story about a vineyard and some bad tenants who refused to pay rent to the landlord. When the religious leaders heard Jesus teach this parable, they looked for ways to kill him because they knew that they were the bad tenants, by implication, the targets of this rather pointed story. And the religious leaders knew that from the Old Testament, that Israel was the vineyard, Israel was the vine. In places, for example, like Isaiah chapter 5 and in Micah chapter 7, we find songs of lament. The Lord God took a vine and he planted a vineyard. He tended that vine. He cared for that vineyard carefully, choosing the best soil, building a watchtower, clearing the ground of stones. And he did all of this in expectation of a crop 
a crop of good fruit, good grapes to eat, the early figs that he craved. But alas, it yielded not good fruit, but bad fruit, murder and violence, bloodshed and oppression, greediness and lies. Those songs of lament employ the image of a vine or vineyard or fig tree as a metaphor for the nation of Israel. God picked, plucked the nation of Israel, lifting them up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and transplanting them to Canaan, the promised land. And he did all of that in expectation of good fruit. It is important to God that human beings are fruitful. People were made by God to be fruitful. That saying, of course, employs uh, a, a botanical or horticultural or agricultural metaphor. People are animals, not plants. We don't literally bear fruit. But the metaphor was chosen right at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, we read, So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, bear fruit. And in that context, bearing fruit meant multiplying in number, filling the earth and subduing it, working with God as his representatives, with him and like him, in order to bring peace, order, and righteousness to a chaotic and disordered world. Them knowing the special ordering and protection of God in the garden, but that garden hopefully expanding and expanding until it filled the whole world, working with him and for him and like him. As we remember, things went badly. But much later, for Israel as a nation to bear fruit, that meant in context for them to exhibit to the nations around them, the manifest wisdom of following God through obedience in spirit and to the letter, the law of Moses. Justice and mercy, compassion and fairness, caring for widow, alien and the fatherless. Working with God like God. And what did the Lord require? That they acted justly. That they loved mercy and that they walked humbly with their God, Micah 6.8. Now, the, the metaphor of bearing fruit was an especially meaningful metaphor for people living in the ancient Near East. You, you didn't plant trees because you liked the look of them, or because you wanted to attract birds to your garden, or because you wanted to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. No, you planted fruit trees... Because you needed food. And in the face of poor soils, limited resources, and uncertain rains, you couldn't afford to have a tree using up the nutrients in the environment without a solid return on your investment. So you worked the soil and you pruned the tree or the vine like your life depended on it because it might. And an unfruitful tree was worse than just a disappointment. It was a liability. It was something you needed to get rid of. It, has, uh, uh, you know, it was in danger of being pulled up and turned into firewood because 
it was using up limited resources. A tree that bore no fruit or bad fruit was a cost to the entire community. For a vineyard or a vine or a fruit tree, bearing fruit wasn't optional. It had no right or claim to exist except that it fulfilled that for which it was brought into existence. So then, as you might already know, Jesus employs this horticultural metaphor of a vine or a vineyard or a fig tree or fruit tree again and again and again. You can probably think of many examples in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the other three Gospels. But only in John's Gospel do we hear Jesus say, I am the true vine. The nation of Israel was not the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. The point of national Israel was to point, therefore, to Jesus. Or to put that another way, the nation of Israel was incapable of ever bearing fruit except that it put its faith in the Lord, in Yahweh, now revealed to be Jesus of Nazareth. I am the true vine. In declaring thus, Jesus shows that there are no other vines, only weeds. Humanity is incapable of ever bearing fruit acceptable to God, except that it puts its faith in the Lord, in Yahweh, now revealed to be Jesus of Nazareth. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. The will of God will prosper. The will of God that humanity might bear good fruit, it will happen. That will, will prosper through the partnership between the Son, representing humanity, and the Father, representing divinity. Although both are one. Together, there will be fruit. No doubt, none whatsoever. How will this be managed? Verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or cleans so that it might be even more fruitful. A lot of energy goes into making fruit. Left to its own devices in its natural state, a grapevine would produce a lot of branches and a lot of leaves, for its interest is in collecting sunlight and in dominating its immediate landscape to the exclusion of other plants. That's what it would like to do. There is a grapevine growing on the trellis, on the pergola, outside my office window, 30 feet that way, attached to the rectory. You can admire it, if you like, on your way out. You'll see that it is extremely bushy and dense, which is fine because that's what we want from it, shade. If indeed we wanted anything from it at all, I can't remember. I can remember that it has borne fruit in the past, I think maybe once, I can't remember, it's, but it's not very fruitful. And we haven't tended it that way. It's not intended to be fruitful. It bears very little fruit. 
Vines that put a lot of energy into grapes, uh, they do that when you signal to them that this season might just be their last. You cut back unproductive growth. You limit the number of grape bunches, and you don't overdo the fertilizer. Then they, at a biological level, they stop thinking about themselves, and they start thinking about maximizing the chance of reproducing themselves, the next generation, bearing fruit. It's an intensive process. Viticulture requires a lot of hard work, something I know almost nothing about. That is viticulture, not hard work. With respect to viticulture, I know nothing about it at all except the three minutes of online research I did for the sake of this sermon. But the father is the viticulturalist, the, the grape grower, and he knows all about it, and he takes an intense and intimate interest in the vine, in his son, cleaning and pruning the branches. And as will become progressively clear, we, Christ's disciples, we are the branches. Verse 3. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to, me, to, spoken to you. Re re remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Uh, this is an astonishing text, this is absolutely astonishing and extraordinary because it is a most extraordinary encouragement and a most extraordinary warning. To begin with the warning, if you do not remain in me, says Jesus, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Many people say that they believe in God. I'm sorry, I misread that sentence. Many people say that they don't believe in God, is the start of the thought. Many people say that they don't believe in God, but they say if it so turns out that they are wrong and that they do face God, meet their maker, so to speak, on that great day, the day of judgment, then they believe that they will be okay because they are basically good. What they mean is that their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds so that, on balance, they are basically nice people and that God will recognize their good deeds as such. In contrast, Jesus 
insists that un unless a person is known to him personally and lives confessing him as Lord, abiding in him and feeding on him, it is impossible for that person to do any good deeds at all. It is impossible for a human being to do any good deed except that they are in Christ. As the Bible puts it, a follower of Jesus. That's not, of course, to suggest that you and I can't do good deeds with respect to each other. Of course we can, but not before God. So then, please, if, if you haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus, please understand, you've got nothing. Zip. No runs on the board. No good works on record at all. Nothing. None at all. As Jesus says by way of conclusion to several of his parables, to those who have, more will be given. But to those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away from them. I'm not suggesting, not for a trillion billionth of a femtosecond, I'm not suggesting that those of us who are in Christ are saved by our good works. Heaven forbid! Such a thought is repugnant. We know that we're saved by grace, forgiven. In other words, all our bad deeds, forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, shed on our behalf by Jesus on the cross. Clean, no strikes on the board, no crosses, no black marks, nothing, zip, nothing at all. Isn't that amazing? But whilst we are saved by grace, we are judged by works. A regular refrain in the Bible from one end of the Bible to the other is this. God says, I will reward each person according to what they have done. So let us take this warning to heart. It is impossible to bear God good fruit, the fruit that he desires, except that we remain in, abide in, continue to walk with Jesus, his son. And let's, with that thought in mind, then turn to the very great encouragement that this text provides us with. For whilst it is impossible, it is in, for whilst it is impossible for a human being to bear good fruit ex except that he or she remains in Christ, it is likewise impossible for a human being who remains in Christ to fail to produce good fruit. Isn't that extraordinary? What a promise, and what grace! For verse sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. When we show ourselves to be Christ's disciples, we bear much fruit. Fruit that will last to the glory of God our Father. But that now begs the question, how do we do that? How do we bear fruit? 
Well, moving now into verses 9 to 17, the focus shifts from vine, gardener, branches, and fruit to the intimate relationship between love and fruit. And for, in this next section, the word love comes to dominate the text. We read the word love nine times. And as many of you may already know, the Greek word that's been translated into English as the word love is agape or agape. And again, as many of you may already know, a very great deal has been written and said about the meaning of this word agape in the last 60 years, and some of it may even be true. It is often said that this word, agape, in contrast to other Greek words for love, means unconditional, pure, selfless, divine love. That's what you might find written. That might not actually be strictly true. Agape in Greek has a very wide, very broad range of meanings, just as the word love in the English language has a very wide range of meanings. So then in English, I might say, I'd love a cup of tea right now. Or I might say, but I love her. Or I might say, I don't like cricket, I love it. And mean quite different things. And similarly, agape has a very broad semantic field. But there are some differences, especially the way that the Bible uses the word. Again, in our contemporary cultural understanding, the word love is primarily concerned with expressing something to do with feelings or emotions, intense feelings of desire, affection, or attraction. In our culture, love is a feeling. The Greek word agape, to be sure, is also concerned with feelings, with affection and desire and longing and goodwill. But when push comes to shove, true love is not shown by feelings, but rather by actions. So not feelings, but actions. A second thought to consider with respect to love is that the Bible itself draws a contrast between the love of the world and the love of God. The contrast between these two ideas is very big and deserves a fuller treatment than I can manage now. But in brief, the love of the world, when push comes to shove, is all concerned with getting. So then when I say, I'd love a cup of tea right now, or, but I love her, or, I don't like cricket, I love it, and mean those things sincerely, but ultimately my concern is getting. Fulfilling my desires, getting tea, getting her, getting cricket. That's my concern. And by the way, in the interests of full disclosure, I do not either like or love cricket, but I can tolerate watching it with people who do. In contrast to the love of the world, the love of God is not about getting, but giving. And with those things in mind, not feelings, but actions, not getting, but giving, let's listen again to the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
We, we find out how God feels about us, don't we? We find out that God loves us. We, but then we don't hear much about his feelings rather than waxing lyrical about God's passionate emotions, rather than unfolding the feelings in God's heart. We hear about his actions, his decisions. And what was the action? The action was giving. And that giving was self-sacrificial. He gave of himself. Indeed, he gave that which was most precious to him, his one and only son. So then back to our text, verse, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. How has the Father loved Jesus, the Son? By giving the Father has given the Son his name and his authority, the authority to raise the dead and to judge all humanity, a gift from the Father to the Son, the gift also to heal the sick, authority over nature, over chaos and chance, over all the powers of hell, over every power and principality. God has given this to the Son. And given such staggering authority, such power, it is comforting that the only context for such authority to be used is in the context of a comprehensive, mutual, two-way intimacy. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. The Son loves the Father and does only that which the Father shows him, and he says only that which the Father has given him to say, saying it and doing it only in the way that the Father has shown him to say it and do it. So too, Jesus has loved his disciples. How has he loved his disciples? By giving. The Son has given his disciples his name and his authority. Authority to raise the dead, heal the sick. Authority in his name over every natural, spiritual, and physical dominion and power. He's only just said to them, very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will do the works that I do. And in fact will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Given such staggering authority, that the disciples of Christ have been given. It is comforting that the only context for the use of such authority is the context of comprehensive, mutual, two-way intimacy. Jesus shows his disciples all that he is doing. And they will do only that which is he is doing, and they will do it the way he does it. How can such intimacy be so, given that Jesus is going to the Father? Well, as we've seen in the last two weeks, this is the question that Jesus has already spoken to. The Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus in the absence of Jesus. For he is with us and he is in us. And he teaches us all things, reminding us of everything that Jesus said to his first disciples. So then, the disciples are to abide or remain in Christ's love. How? By keeping his command that they love each other as he has loved them. 
No one has greater love than this, that he lay down, sorry, no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. If, if love is any action prompted by concern for another's welfare, that their welfare is as important to you as your own, then this greater love is any action prompted by concern for another's welfare where their welfare is more important than your own. If under Moses it was love your neighbor as yourself, in Christ it is love your neighbor more than yourself. Love is action. Love is giving. Love is self-sacrificial. Love is cross-shaped. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you slaves any longer because a slave doesn't know what the master is up to. But I have called you friends because I have shared with you comprehensively and intimately everything the Father has shared with me. This is my command. Love each other. And so back to the title of this section of Scripture, The Vine and the Branches. But it is also about love and fruit. There is an intimate living connection between the vine and the gardener, between the vine and the branches, between the gardener and the branches, and between fruitfulness and love. As the Anglican prayer book puts it, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Um, actually, the second part is a response, so we can try that again. Uh, your part is, and bear much fruit to your glory. So we can try that now if you like. Let's pray. May your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen and amen. Much fruit, fruit that will last. Amen, Lord Jesus.